Oh, good morning. Good morning. How are you today? Long time no see. It's good to be here. Really, really is. It is a joy to come to a place where they have coffee called, what is it, Volcano of Gold or something. I mean, that can only mean good things. So I'm going to pray, and if you're cool with that, why don't you join with me? Um, This is a place where it doesn't matter where you are in your spiritual journey. Maybe someone who's maybe coming back to faith, checking out faith, been walking, following Jesus for decades, or anywhere in between, you're welcome here. And um, I really hope that today is a big step forward for you. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful presence. And I ask, Lord God, that I will decrease and you will increase and that um, we'll just have hearts that are open. So no matter where we are, I just pray that you will meet us where we are and just as we are and speak to us. So Father, from our side, uh, we just make the decision to be open. And Father, we ask that from your side, you will speak the truth and hope that you always do. So we thank you for this in Jesus' mighty name. And you can say, Amen. Uh, Back in the mid-1980s, this was, so I was in my, I was about 20 or so, um, I played, I made the mistake of playing a social game of football. I was at a residential college at university. This is the first time I was at university. There's been a few iterations along the way. And I made this big mistake, and I have to say, because I'd been focusing on my studies at the time, I wasn't particularly fit. Like, my muscles weren't that toned, and that was a big mistake when I said yes to this social game of football. Anyway, I was, because of my height and my build, I usually played centre-half forward or full forward. So I'm playing centre-half forward, the ball comes toward me, and I go up with a big pack to take the mark, and I still remember, as we all collided in midair, I sort of got the ball in my hands, and I sort of got hit really hard from the side, so that as I was coming up, I sort of was coming down on an awkward angle. And I still remember to this day that I landed on my right leg, so as I came down on my right leg and the momentum of my body was heading in this direction, but my right knee went in that direction. And I heard an audible crack as I hit the ground. I have never known pain like it. I discovered later that the audible crack I heard was my patella, my kneecap dislocating. And then as I hit the ground, it snapped back into line. And I have never known pain like it. I, I will acknowledge Uh, those who've experienced childbirth in the house. (laughs) But I just want to propose the idea that knee pain comes a very close second, okay? I remember lying on the ground, punching the ground, literally punching the ground. I was in that much agony. Anyway, I learned a very clear lesson that day because it really impacted me. I had to retire from sport, basketball, football, and I'm clearly carrying a bit of baggage ever since. But I learned that day that sometimes things can happen in a game that can threaten to take you out of a game. Isn't that true? And just like in sport, it's often true in life. Sometimes things can happen in life that can threaten to take you out of life. You feel like, wow, this is just not working. My life has finished. I'm just gonna be existing from here on in, not really thriving. And I wanna challenge that today because I think There are some really big lessons we can learn from God's Word that's going to help us really meet and defeat the stuff that can happen, opposition that can come our way. And think about it, in a sporting context, there is opposing sides, aren't there? And the opposing side wants to take you out. I mean, in cricket, they literally want to get you out. They call it being out, where you literally have to hang your head and walk off the field. Isn't it amazing? 
So they want to take you out. At the very least, when you're in sport, or they don't want to take you out like in the game of cricket, they at least want to neutralise you in the game. Think about football, and they will be tagging you. So you can't do anything. There'll be guys on you the whole time harassing you, trying to neutralise you. Or if it's in basketball, they'll double-team you where there's just no way you can seem to make any progress. And I just think it's true. Whether in sport or whether in life, opposition, when it comes against us, seeks to do some pretty significant things. Number one, I think it tries to dominate us. That's what opposition does. It wants you to really lose energy. It wants to so dominate you, you just sort of give up. So I'm just not going to thrive here. I'm not going to grow. I'm just going to just keep on keeping on. But it's just, you know, my life's just going to be ticking over. So it seeks to dominate you so you lose energy. What else does opposition do? I think it also seeks to demoralise you so you lose heart. And the final thing is I think it seeks to not only dominate so that you lose energy, demoralise so you lose heart, but I think it wants to distract so that you'll lose focus. Now let's just unpack some of those, because I've seen it before. Those of you who watched the World Cup, Soccer World Cup, 2014, do you remember the semi-final between Brazil and Germany? Do you remember that? 7-1 was the score. Now think about the Brazilian team. This was in their home. Like Brazil is like a centre of football. This is a semi-final against Deutschland. They're in Brazil and they went down 7-1. And you could see them. They had been so dominated by this German team that they just lost energy. You could see them, their heads were like this and they're just moping around and they could never really recover. That's what opposition does. Seeks to dominate you so you lose energy. It also seeks to demoralise or you lose heart. I had a friend of mine, when I was in the police, um, uh, she, I would have a number of partners, and um, one partner, particularly one season I had, was a female. And her father happened to be a senior officer with the Australian Special Air Service, SAS, our special forces out at Swanbourne uh, here in Perth. And he was an incredibly fit guy, as all the guys there are, and he would go running with his daughter, my partner. Now, my partner, she was incredibly fit. She would run me into the ground any day of the week. But she used to tell me that her father would psychologically sort of go to war against her when he ran with her. Now, he loves her, loved her to death, but he would sometimes want to run her to death because he would just try to demoralise her. And she would laugh because she knew what he was doing. Like they would go for a run and they'd be chatting away, father and daughter, father and daughter, and they'd get to about three or four or five kilometres because Tiff, she was really fit. And then as soon as he felt that she was just starting to struggle, like she was panting a bit more than usual or just groaning a bit more because of the exertion, almost imperceptibly he would just lift the tempo just a little bit. And she'd be going, wow, wow I'm really struggling now. And then she said, and then he just lifted a little bit more. And then, and then she suddenly dawned on her one day what he was doing. And she'd be punching him and he'd laugh and lift the tempo a little bit more. <laughs> now that can happen, can't it, in life where it just demoralises you, lose heart. But the last one, I reckon, it can distract you so that you lose focus as well. I mean, there's a story that um, I sometimes tell I don't know if you were into sport. It's a bit of a sporting theme this morning, isn't it? But Pakistan had a fantastic player called Javed Mandad. He was an outstanding batsman. Well, Australia at the same time had this brilliant fast bowler called Merv Hughes. And Merv Hughes with a big moustache, he tells the true story. I've seen him tell the story. Where he, in the planning beforehand, before the match, they were deciding, okay, how are we going to sort of throw these Pakistani players off their game? In other words, how are we going to distract them? 
How are we going to get them to lose focus? They call it sledging. Uh, the, ver- the Australian team call it verbal intimidation. And they absolutely do do this. They plan to do this. They figure out who's psychologically fragile and let's just hammer them till they, till they break down. It's pretty pretty full on, isn't it? They absolutely, and they're trying to decide, and they were deciding, should we go after Javed Meandad? And they all decided that he's too fiery a character, and he's too good a player, like he's too psychologically strong, and he's too good at his batting, that they think, no, that'll, that'll backfire, and he will destroy us. So let's not do that. Now, Javed wanted to go after him, sorry, Merv wanted to go after him, but no, and the captain, Mark Taylor, said, no, nah, not going to go there. Well, anyway, they're playing. Jarvid's in Merv's play, and Jarvid starts hitting him all over the paddock, hitting fours and hitting six, and Merv's fuming, and he wants it, and he wants to say something to try and get him, and then he'd look across at the slips cordon, and there would be the Australian captain looking at him going, <laughs> like, don't do it like this, and Merv would turn around and trudge back and come in, and he'd get hit for four, and he'd want to say something. He'd look at the captain and do it like this, and he's controlling, controlling. But eventually, Jarvid starts doing it to Merv. Jarvid starts verbally intimidating Merv, and he actually starts to say, and this is true, true story, he says, hey, Merv, you're too fat to be a bowler. Oh he says, you should be a bus driver. And, and in between, all, all due respect to the bus drivers in the house, but, but in between bowls, he'd be gone as Merv's trudging back because Mark's going, don't you dare any say anything. He's, trying, he's hearing Java going, hey, bus driver. And Java a couple of times put the bat against his leg and went, hey, Merv. <laughs> toot, toot. What this? He's doing that. True story. Anyway, in the end, he did a bouncer. No, sorry, he, he decided I'm going to come around the wicket to try and do a different angle. Dean Jones is at mid-on. So Dean walks across and says, yeah, good idea, Merv. You're going to come around the wicket, different angle. I reckon that'd be good. And Merv, this is what he said. He said, no, Dean, I'm going to bowl a bouncer and I'm going to kill him, is what I'm going to do. <laughs> and apparently Dean said, yep, yeah, good plan. Just go, go with your plan. So he comes in, bowls a bouncer. Java tries to hit him over the top. He hits the top edge and he gets caught. Whoa, all the players rush in. But Merv noticed that the all the Aussie players rushed in a little bit more quickly than usual because they knew that big Merv was finally going to say something. So they were all coming running in to see what he's going to say. And Merv, and this is exactly what he said, just as Java turned to trudge off the packet, Merv just came right up like, and he just put his hand out like that next to Java and went, tickets please, and kept running. It's a true story. We, we could close in prayer after that, couldn't we? It's a true story. So what are we saying? Dominate. You know, you lose energy. Demoralise, lose heart, distract, and you lose focus. It happens in sport. It can happen in life. So the question is, we need strategies. So when that happens, are we going to lose energy or lose heart or lose focus? When opposition hits us, we need strategies to meet and to defeat that sort of opposition. That's the question. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I reckon these wonderful parallels, I love parallels that happen in life. You know, often people tend to separate spirituality from the rest of life. That's just a false separation. There is an absolute resonance 
we are, I was saying to Louis earlier, there's a great New Testament scholar in the world today called N.T. Wright, and he says we are holes, not souls, as in W-H-O-L-E-S. We are holes, not souls. Every part of us impacts every other part of us. And so it should not surprise us when we hear a principle in sport resonate with a principle in life, which resonates with a principle in spirituality, because all of life is to be lived in relationship with him, the one who created us. So I wonder about these parallels here because I think it resonates in the spiritual sphere of life. I was looking through the scriptures. I mean, Jesus himself, so this incredible person who lived in the first century, he said, when you follow him, talking about himself, when you follow me, you will face opposition. So right up front, he put it out there. Now, if I was someone who was exploring following Jesus, I would want to know that up front. I would want to know, okay, if I make this decision to follow you, What's likely to happen? Like, I need to count the cost here. And we've got to be very careful. We don't present it as though, you know, come and it's all going to be smooth sailing. No, he says, no, you follow me, it's going to be tough. But the wonderful thing is, and as I looked it up, I just went, that's really wonderful. He's actually saying, expect trouble. Like, expect tough times, expect opposition. But then he says, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Note the language. You know, when the distraction, when the domination, when the disheartening actually wants to rob you of heart, Jesus says, take heart. Like he says, it's going to be there, but take heart. I have. So he's saying, if you follow me, it's going to be tough, expect trouble, but at the same time, expect that now you're in relationship with me, I am going to give you the heart you need to meet and to defeat this sort of stuff. So this shouldn't surprise us then, as we look through this, to see, okay, what has he got to say? Because Jesus wants his followers to not only get in the game, but to stay in the game. Stare down, face down opposition. Now, the opposition could be anything. Could be people, could be personalities, could be situations, could be circumstances, could be attitudes, could be actions, whatever it may be. What do we do so that we don't lose energy? What do we do so we don't lose heart? What do we do so we don't lose focus? How do we stay in the game? You know, there's a great story. It's one of those little, I like pulling out little stories that are a little bit like, oh, I didn't really notice that before. It's almost between the lines, you know? Well, here's one of these little stories. Um, it's in the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts of the Apostles because it tells the history of the early church, the first century church, and I love it. You can just about taste the dust of the streets. It's just real and raw. They don't try and put a plastic job on it. They just say, this is what happened. Good, bad, and ugly. Here it is. And I love that authenticity. I love it. Anyway, it's in Acts chapter 23. Now, what had happened is that a guy called Paul, who was a leader in the early church, an incredible guy, a real type A personality, Paul's the sort of guy who didn't suffer fools easily. Uh, he would rub you the wrong way because he was very, very focused, very focused. And if you didn't go the way he thought you should be going, then there was going to be trouble. He, he, would, he would speak directly, you know, and they had a few blow-ups along the way. And I love that because we get to know all about this. You know? Anyway, Paul... He's been on his big third long journey telling others about Jesus. And then he comes back to Jerusalem and he gets attacked by a mob because he's telling people about Jesus. And he ends up being arrested. Now, it's in such an uproar that the Roman garrison, which was just situated just near the the, um, Jewish temple, they heard the commotion. And the Roman garrison leader got a squad of soldiers and they rushed down to try and figure out why is this riot starting. They discovered that this guy seems to be in the middle of it and everyone's really angered about him. So let's grab him. He's obviously done something wrong. So they grab him, they arrest him 
And as they're about to, because in these days it was a pretty, pretty tough world, they were about to beat him to try and figure out, okay, what have you done wrong? They want him to confess to something. And they're about to lay him out to beat him and whip him. And he says, is this what you do to Roman citizens? So you've got to know in the, in the Roman world, to say that you are civis romanos, a Roman citizen, was a massive thing. Because everyone knew that if you interfered, if you... Um, if you sort of um, brought an unauthorised arrest upon you, just did anything that actually quashed the rights of a citizen of Rome would mean that the might of imperial Rome would come crashing down on your head. That's high, how high they were held. And then the Roman guy, when he realised you're a Roman citizen, whoa, you know, quickly released him, pulled him back, he apologises to him, and then he's, but he's still trying to figure out what's, why, why is everyone angry about you? What's going on? Why are they opposed to you? Note the words. Why are they opposed to you? And at this point, he just, he sort of explains it to him, and he goes, so he starts to realise, okay, this is something to do with this religion thing. He's talking about this guy called Jesus and a resurrection. So look, I'll get him, Paul, with the Jewish religious council and they can sort it out amongst themselves. It's religious, not political. Get the idea? So he puts him in the Jewish ruling council. This is where the story picks up. And this is what happens. And it always makes me laugh. Acts 23, verse 1. Gazing intently. The verb is atanitso. It means to stare down. Okay to stare down. So gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, brothers, I've always lived before God with a clear conscience. Instantly, Ananias the high priest commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. Now, what do you think Paul's gonna do? Well, it all depends on what you think following Jesus looks like. Is he gonna be passive, a doormat? Is he gonna turn around and smack the high priest? Is he gonna be a destroyer? What's he gonna do? Is he gonna be passive, aggressive? Going to be passive aggressive? Yeah. What's he going to do? See, it all depends on what you think following Jesus looks like. Now, if this is a follower of Jesus, Paul's learnt, okay, this is what Jesus would do. So how am I going to respond in some ways will reflect what, how I think Jesus would respond. So what's going to happen? Here it goes. Next verse. But Paul said to him, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. That tells me being a follower of Jesus does not mean you're a doormat. That tells me. That doesn't mean you sit there and just take it. He says, no, if you see something unjust, you stand up for justice. And you say, hang on, you're a corrupt hypocrite. And he goes on, he said, what kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? He calls him on his hypocrisy. You know? But notice what he said, God will slap you. Notice he didn't say, I'm going to take you out. Notice he didn't say that. That tells you something else here. See, see, a follower of Jesus is not passive. You're not a doormat. But nor are you a destroyer. You actually leave people in the hands of God. So you stand up for justice, but you don't personally bring the vengeance. There is only one. This is why Paul in other places would say that God is the only judge. He is the only one. It's not for us to do that. There is only one right judge. Isn't that interesting? So I was just looking at that and going, well, that's interesting. So he's not passive, but I wouldn't say he's, so he's not a doormat, but he's not aggressive like a destroyer. Then he goes on, and here Paul starts to show some street smarts. He's an intelligent guy. People tell him, Paul was one of the most well-informed, intelligent, well-educated first century Jews going. Like a really bright spark. 
Okay. And here he says this, Paul realised that some members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. Now, he had been educated as a Pharisee. He knew Pharisees and Sadducees, these two groups within the Jewish religion council backwards, and so he shouts this. Now, you've got to understand what he's about to do. He knows that Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection, they do not believe in the spirits, and they do not believe in angels. He, as a Pharisee, did. He looks at them and he goes, okay, this half believe in the resurrection, this half do not believe there's going to be a resurrection. So what does he do? He basically pulls out a spiritual theological hand grenade (laughs) and just lobs it in the middle. This is what he says. Brothers, I am a Pharisee as were my ancestors and I am on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. Kaboom, it goes. And then in this beautiful bit of classical historical understatement, this divided the council. I reckon that's really clever. What does he do? When he meets opposition that seeks to what? Dominate him? Okay. Demoralise him? Distract him? Well done. Louis got it here. What does he do? Well, one way I could say he actually disarms them, doesn't he? You know? He actually divides them. He's not passive. He's not really hyper-aggressive. He has this this really intelligent assertiveness there. He doesn't make it a personal vendetta, but he's not going to roll over when there's injustice either. I love this. And here he is getting stuck in, and they get so violent with each other, the Roman commander who brought him there to sort this out has got another riot on his hand. So again, he's got to pull Paul out to rescue him. He literally says, he says, they thought they were going to tear him apart. Okay, that's how bad it got. Anyway, he pulls him back into custody. Now, my point is this. He's not excessively passive, so he's not compliant, he's not docile. Okay? Nor is he excessively aggressive, so he's not vengeful, he's not vindictive, so he's not a doormat, not a destroyer, he's a disarmer. He's just assertive and he's effective. He's cool, he's tough, he's great under pressure, secure in his own skin, he's persuasive, he engages his mind, he's passionate, he engages his heart, and confident in God, and he got all of that from the example of Jesus. So it should not surprise us when you read all of the New Testament, you see the same things happening, the same principles being explained and applied. So what therefore can be said about how you and I meet the stuff that comes against us? How do you meet and defeat opposition? Well, you don't roll over, nor do you go back and destroy what's coming in. How do you get this wisdom that these early first century followers did? Well, I'm going to put to you three things, I reckon, that really, in a sense, reflect what the entire New Testament says. It's like putting it all together. Okay, how does it look like in 21st century life and living? This happened in the first century. What does it look like in the 21st century? And I'm going to give you three principles that I reckon, if you and I apply them, will help you to meet and to defeat opposition. When you're losing energy, losing heart, losing focus. The very first one is this. When opposition comes against you, live a life that outlives it outlive. Think about that. Outlive it. That's the way of responding to it. How do you outlive it? Well, I reckon a Jesus-shaped response is to live a wholehearted life. When stuff comes against you, live with such strength, such wisdom, such integrity that it will overcome and indeed shame opposition. People just stand back and go, wow. You know, despite all the stuff that they've hammered you with or all the stuff that's come your way, you have lived such a vibrant, wholehearted life. People just stand back and they're actually put to shame, put to silence. 
when they see you living such a full life. That can only come from someone living in you. This is why Jesus said, hey, you're going to be trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In other words, you need me, and it's okay, I'm going to give you the heart you need. He'll be the one who helps us to outlive it. Well, let me give you an example of this. Let's look at Titus 2, verse 6 to 8. Here, Paul is instructing the young leader, Titus. See, First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, those three are called the pastoral epistles. Uh, Timothy, who was a young leader, had been put in charge of a church called, in a place called Ephesus. You can visit it today. In fact, you can go to the ruins and walk down the streets and so on. Titus was another young leader. And this is what he says to Titus about living this whole life. Note the language. He says, in the same way, he says, encourage the young men to live wisely. Note the language, to live wisely. What does that look like? You yourself must be an example to them. Okay, here's a leader. You lead by example. By doing what? By doing good works of every kind. Outlive them. If stuff comes against you, live in a way that just blows them away with such good works. The stuff you do is people go, that's actually a really kind person. He's really generous. Look at that. He got really hit hard, but he's actually responded with kindness. That's outliving. Let everything you do, note the language. See, it's practical. Not everything you think, everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. So you're teaching one thing, but then you're doing it. Do you see the integrity? That's what an integrity, integrous person is, where what happens out here matches what's happening in here. In other words, what you say matches what you do. Sorry, I went forward when I should have gone in here. What you say matches what you do. Okay? Did that just to confuse you all. Okay? Let's go on. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticised. Then those who oppose us, note the language, note those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. You outlive opposition and you will disarm it and it will be shamed into, well, it will be sent into shame and into silence. It says here, we'll be ashamed and have nothing bad to say. They'll be shamed into silence. That's how you outlive. Elsewhere, you see the same guy, Paul, writing things like this. He says, do things in such a way, in other words, live in such a way that everyone can see that you are honourable. That's Romans 12, verse 17. Now, I'm thinking about an example of this. I came across one years ago, uh, which I thought was quite powerful. And some of you may be familiar with this young lady. This photo is a photo of a girl by the name of Bethany Hamilton, Um, she obviously has one arm. She's the basis of the movie Soul Surfer, which some of you may have seen. She's a follower of Jesus, lives in Hawaii. You need churches in Hawaii. You know, they need to reach, you need to suffer for Christ in Hawaii, okay? I always want to plant a church in Queenstown, New Zealand. They need Jesus there. They do. Someone, Someone needs to suffer for Jesus. Yeah, Louis, you and I will go, okay? Okay. Anyway, so there's great churches in Hawaii. Um, anyway, so she was obviously a young surfer, um, follower of Jesus, and at the age of 13, um, she got attacked by a tiger shark, and that was the result. Now, she chose, as this opposition came against her, sometimes it's not people, sometimes it's just circumstance, it's just what happens, you know, stuff happens. She chose not to let it take her out of the game. She just decided, I'm going to outlive this. She'd always wanted to be a pro surfer. She is. The last time she, I checked, she was ranked 20th in the world. How's that? With one arm. Wow. Just think about that for a moment. 
Think about the balance needed. Think about just getting up standing on a board with one arm. That's incredible. So here she is, this amazing young lady. Her faith in Jesus is very vibrant, very real. She turned pro and a number of years ago, she got married to a youth pastor by the name of Adam Dirks. And we've got a photo here. The reason I want to show you this is twofold. They met um, in Hawaii. Um, you know, the rest of us go out on, you know, they, over there when they go out on like a group date or a blind date or something like that, they do other things. They do these things called cliff jumping where they jump off cliffs into the surf, something that's unique to Hawaii. And that's where they met. And this wonderful young guy, youth pastor in the church, just came along, you know, swept her off her feet and then just threw her off a cliff. And that's how they met. Okay. Now, the reason I show you that photo is to show you how you can outlive opposition. Because here she is, this vibrant young girl. She said, no, I'm going to be a pro surfer, and she is. She was really concerned, given her condition, what she looked like, whether a young man would ever ask her to marry. She was really deeply, deeply concerned, worried. And she would basically say to her mum, who who would ever want this? That's what she would say. Two weeks before she met Adam, she was praying with her mum, and she just put it all before God. And she said, I just have to trust him, whether I'm, because singleness is a great calling of God. Really is. It is a high calling of God. Um, I may come back one day and um, talk to you about how, how wonderful singleness is. It's not for everyone, but boy, it's a high calling. It really is. God honours it in incredible ways. But here, she was just trusting God, whether single or not. And she actually asked God, she said, just to use my surfing uh, for a bigger and a deeper purpose. Wow. And I think God just sees that attitude, wanting to outlive opposition, and he just honours it. And in God's grace, he gave her a man. And in God's grace, he brought this incredible favour upon this movie, Soul Surf, and away it went, and it just resonated with so many people. I just want to give you an example. That's how you can outlive. Just be who God calls you to be. Step forward, don't step back. Don't just monotonise through life, if that's the verb. Just really, really go for it. Okay, so that's outlive. Number two, and I've got 24 seconds. Here we go. Is it okay if we go just a touch? Great. I want to show you a video, that's all. That's all. Okay, this, this next outlive, and given my love for alliteration, outlove. Okay. How do you meet opposition? You outlive it, you also outlove it. Jesus is himself said, everyone's familiar with the idea, aren't we, of loving your friends and hating your enemies, but what did he say? Love your enemies. Whoa. That's a tough one. Always makes me laugh when people say to me, because they, they say, hey, okay, you've done a lot of research studies in theology and everything. What's, and they want to have a discussion about the really deep things of theology. And they say, what's the deepest thing? And they're thinking about like the transcendence of God and a held intention with the imminence of God, or is it some sort of Trinitarian conception? And I just go, you want to know deep? Here's deep. Love your enemies. That's deep. Once you sort that one out, come back and I'll give you something else. Okay? So this is pretty big. I love it. Love your enemies, pray for them. In other words, let opposition bring out the best in you, not the worst in you. Okay? Outlive it, outlove it. Paul faced opposition. He had incredible personal tax, attacks come against him. This is what he wrote once in Ephesians 5 verse 2. He said this, Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. In other words, love is sacrificial. When you get hit to out love, it's going to cost you 
but it will bring out the best in you. Don't let it bring out the worst in you. This is what Jesus is saying. He said, when stuff hits you, don't oppose it by actually vengefully coming against. That brings out the worst in us. He says, no, let it bring out the best in you. Outlive it, outlove it. Respond to hate with love. Respond to anger with forgiveness. This is the challenge. But remember, he's saying, you won't be able to do this on your own. You need me. Take heart. I've overcome the world. I'm all you need, and I'll be more than sufficient. Some of you would have heard of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Okay, well known. He once wrote these famous words, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. He used to talk about the creative and redemptive power of love. It love disarms, it overcomes, it outlives, it outloves. It can even turn an enemy into a friend. So outlive it, outlove it. And the last one, who wants to guess? Outlast it. Outlast it. Good job. You're on next week. Outlive, outlove, outlast it. In life and in faith, um, ability brings value, but I reckon stickability brings victory. Stickability, perseverance. Winston Churchill, the famous World War II Prime Minister, right at the height of World War II, in fact, it was October 1941, he returned to his school, the school that he'd been educated in called Harrow. And he went there to speak to a graduating class of pupils. This has become quite famous now, but there's a lot of um, inaccurate reporting of what happened here. Um, It's reported that he got up and only said this. He said, never, 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 never give up. And then sat down again. He didn't actually do that, okay? That's just a tale that's developed. But like in all tales that develop, there's a bit of truth in it. What actually happened was this. He got up and this is part of what he said. It was actually a much longer speech. This is part of what he said. He said, never give in. Never give in, never, never, never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honour and good sense. We have only to persevere to conquer. He was talking about the power of perseverance, the strength of stickability outlast until you overcome. Meet opposition, outlive it, outlove it, outlast it. I want to show you this video. Some of you have seen this, I don't know if you're into sort of um, sports that are a little bit out there, but um, Red Bull really are. They're into sports that are a bit out there, and so they sponsor a lot of big attempts. There's a guy by the name of of, uh, Captain Joe Kittinger Jr., who back in 1960 got the world record for the highest altitude ever parachute jump. He was was testing a new stabiliser parachute. He went 19.5 miles above the surface of the earth and jumped out. He's world famous, set all sorts of records until very recently when a guy by the name of Felix Baumgartner decided to take it on. 52 years later, he went to push it further. What was really interesting in all of this is that Baumgartner invited Kittinger, who was now 84 years of age, to be his mission control, his voice in the earphones. In other words, for him to do this, Felix said, the only way I can do this is if I have in my head and in a sense in my heart, the only other person who's done this, who's been there, who knows what it's like. And that was the voice that he heard all the way through. Now, he jumped out with this incredible height, over 20, I think it was over 25, 26 miles above the earth. And he decided to have Kittinger as his capsule communicator, he called, called him. Now, I want to show you this video. It's a, it's a cut-down version of what happened. Things went really well. 
So you're so high, you can with the naked eye see the curvature of the earth. Okay, that's how high you are. Now he was so high and things were going so well, but he knew there was going to be opposition physically come against him and that's what happened. He started to spin and he could not get out of this spin. He could not, nothing he could do. All he knew he had to do was to outlast it. He said, I had to remain conscious until I got enough down into the atmosphere where I could stabilise. And it was a scary, you're going to see a shortened version of this, but it was a scary time. And then throughout it all, the voice in his ear was the only other guy who'd been there and done that and gave him the heart to outlast it. So I want to show you this video. It's called Red Bull Stratus Jump and have a watch what happens. See it when it hit Mach 1? Break the sound barrier. Falling, incredible. Did you hear, Phil, did you hear um, uh, Joe Kittinger, the 84-year-old, at the end say, you did so well, I'm so proud of you. I couldn't have done it better myself. <laughs> okay. Amazing. My point is clear, I think. You outlast it. You persevere. You outlast it until you overcome it. Paul once wrote these words in Galatians 6 verse 9. He wrote this. So let's not get, not, let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. We can meet and you can defeat opposition. And it can be attitudes and actions, people, places, circumstances, situations. But you can meet and defeat it by simply adopting an attitude where I'm going to outlive it, I'm going to outlove it, and I'm going to outlast it. And that can only be done with God living in you by his Holy Spirit. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen? Why don't we pray? Why don't you bow with me, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the wonderful wisdom that comes from your word and the fact that here now in the 21st century, it is just as applicable. And so, Lord God, we just stand before you as different people, but in one place, one community, and we're just asking you to speak to us in these next moments. And Father, whatever the circumstance or the situation each of us is facing, because life is like that, life is broken, we are broken, things happen. So Father, we're asking that you would really do a work in us where we open our hearts to you and to your power, to your presence, to your spirit, to live in us, to give us the heart we need to outlive, outlove and outlast the stuff that happens in our world. Father, grant us that we pray. And Father, for people here who perhaps have never really opened their heart, I pray, Lord God, that you would just grant them the, the wonderful opportunity and capacity to have those sort of conversations with these incredible people in this wonderful church of Elevate Church. I pray that you'll grant conversations that are just helpful, that step forward, that help people to live the life you always intended us to live, I pray. Father, you designed us to live and to live wholeheartedly. And so, Father, I pray you'll help us to do that. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. And you can say, Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Amen.